Welcome to the School of Unlearning. I'm your host, Elisa Haggerty. I've always believed in the power of questions. They create a gap, a space where we pause and begin to challenge the world around us. Without questions, we're stuck in the trance of life, a life given to us versus one created with agency. Your journey to rethink and unlearn the norms no longer serving you begins now. Hey, everybody. On the School of Unlearning podcast today, I'm sitting down with Marnie Blank. Marnie is a friend of mine, and I brought her on the show today because she does some really unique work. She talks about um, the end, the end of life. Um, Her coaching practice is around being an end-of-life planner as a death doula. And I thought that it would be really important in an age today where life is always transient um, and people come and go and there's loss all the time to have someone on the show who can help all of us understand how to process grief a little better and how to prepare better for grief. Marnie has a seven-step process that helps with her her clients with end-of-life planning. She also spends her time within hospice volunteer and as a mediator and as a recovering lawyer. This podcast episode is really informative. I think it's hopeful, and it takes a deep look at how we can all uh, support our family and the people around us in the process of of living and dying. And so enjoy this episode, and you can find out more about Marnie at MarniBlank.com. Hey, Marnie, how are you? Good. How are you? I'm so good. I'm so excited to be speaking to you in December on a sunny day here in Brooklyn. We're both in Brooklyn right now, right? We are. It's very chilly out. Yeah, it's pretty much frigid. Um, So I, you know, in the intro, I talked a lot about your work. And one of the things, actually, we met on a beach in Cape May two years ago now, I think. And uh, I was really drawn to your entrepreneurial spirit. And I was like, oh, this, this woman has some fire in her. She's really just like out to create things and create community. And, um, the more and more we became friends, I started to learn about some of the facets of your coaching, um, which span a few different realms. But what drew me to your work and wanting to bring on the podcast to talk about unlearning is really this idea of being a death doula. Um, so I, I want to hear about that. Um, but before we get into the nitty gritty and what got you there, um, what do people kind of say when you say I'm a death doula or this is the work I do? Or how do you introduce yourself to people when they ask about your work in that way? It's, it's a great question because everyone meets it with like a little bit of a question on their face and then it kind of sinks in and then they get really excited to talk about it because death is not something that we normally talk about um, in, in our society. And what I love is when I say I'm a death doula or an end of life planner and that I'm trying to help people who are youngish and healthiest get there. Um, end of life planning in order and to think about their legacy and, you know, how do you want to be remembered or how do you want to live a life that at the end you, you live a life without regrets. People will open up about all different kinds of interesting topics that really breaks the ice into not just talking about how is your day or what do you do, but it gets to kind of the heart of who you are as a human. Mm -hmm. And it has led to people just sharing all different kinds of things about their family or their experience with death and dying or someone who has touched them um, in a way that is no longer here. And I love how people are open to sharing intimate moments when you just give them the opportunity. Yeah, it seems like um, it's kind of like cuts through the bullshit and right away you get to kind of be like suss out if someone's really interested in connecting and sharing, you know, loss and grief and what it looked like for them or, or, or what they believe it could have been had they had your services. Um, it's, it's actually kind of, I know it's a, it's a, it's a type of practice that is ancient in many ways. Um, but also these days is becoming a bit more sort of mainstream, at least in American culture, like where we get to talk about it with, um, with more context and support these days, which is a great thing. Um, so I'd like to learn before we get into how you, what you feel about grief and what you feel about this end of end of life work. Um, I'd love to just hear a little bit more about life before this. Like, um, were there any sort of influential people growing up that shaped the way you view relationships and community um, and sort of being really tapped into the emotional side of things? Was there anybody who was influential in that realm? 
I think just having a, a really deep relationship with, with my grandparents or my elders. I was always drawn to talking to people, um, my grandparents, and, and not just in a superficial grandparent, grandchild way, but I really love hearing stories of people's lives. And it, it's always been something that has, has drawn me in. And um, from an early age, my grandfather on my mother's side um, had a very interesting past and created a, an autobiography or a biography of, of his life. And I remember reading those stories and hearing those stories and um, loving how he captured his own story. And it made me want to capture the stories of, of my grandparents, which I have done in recent years and my, my great aunt as well. And um, I think just um, being able to understand yourself more by knowing about your your history, your ancestors and and hearing the stories. And like you said, it's a very ancient thing to pass um, memories, past traditions, past rituals um, from generation to generation. And I think that was really the start of of wanting to to learn more about death, dying, and grief because mm -hmm. it's all part of the human experience. Um, you seem really fortunate to have that. I don't think a lot of people have like the ability to grow up around grandparents who are reflective and willing to share and like and, and have that. So I'm I'm happy you have that. I read a quote the other day where it said something like life learnings turn to wisdom only with reflection and mm. like you know we we're all around people with all kinds of diverse experiences in life history but um without that ability to reflect to write to share like your grandfather did you know we, we lose the traditional generational wisdom of the people around us and I think in our culture now, people are taking more of that opportunity to journal, to reflect, to take that time to think for themselves. And I, and I think that is really important for, for future generations and just for our own learnings and, and reflection. And I also think that there's a real missed opportunity um, with our elders to not be asking them more questions. You know, the older generation has has so much wisdom to offer and so many stories and um, and you don't often take the opportunity. They're often sort of forgotten at a certain age and and you forget. But um, you know, just as an anecdote, a neighbor of mine recently um, put out an email to our building saying that he had a collection of art that he wanted to um, start to sell off. Um, and you know, he had she just had too much. And if anyone wanted to stop by. And this man is, you know, probably in his late 70s, early 80s, and his whole home was full of all of this art. And he told me stories about all of them where he found them, the street artists that he started to develop a relationship with and started to collect art. And every every picture, every painting had a story. And it was just a way that I had never spoken to this person before and I learned so much about his life. And he was very willing to to share that with me. And I felt connected in a new way to my to my neighbors. That's incredible. I think it does those moments and those stories do kind of make you realize you're we're walking amongst amongst people with just rich, rich landscapes. And we we don't always ask the right questions. Maybe in this case it was like a prompt to like come take these paintings from me. But I feel like in culture we ask questions that kind of pivot us into like, what do you do for a job or what state are you from? And I know that, you know, um, it, it sort of becomes dull in the beginning. And I wonder, yeah, I just wonder about the ways that we initially approach conversation with people to, to forge connection and see what's there. It just, that kind of came up for me, but, um, so I'd like to learn, I, I know you had a background in law, um, and then you had some pivotal moments there where you decided to question life. So can you walk us through that? Sure. So um, like the the good student that I was, the firstborn of my family, I was very focused on schooling, of getting the good grades, kind of following that path of I went to college. Um, I then took two years and was a legal assistant and then went to law school and, and went in to get a good job. And I was working at um, New York City Housing Authority doing labor and employment law. And I had been a lawyer for about five years at that point. And I was waking up wishing my day away. I had thought this is what I wanted to do. I thought that 
Um, I was on my right path, but there was something that was off, something that didn't feel authentic to, to what I was supposed to be doing. Um, and at 31, I didn't want to be waking up wishing my day away. And I was sitting in my windowless office and I had a snake plant sitting on my desk. Um, and the snake plant is supposed to be able to survive anything. It's supposed to survive low light. It's supposed to survive droughts. It's, it's kind of like the one that you, if you do not have a green thumb that you can um, be proud about, you know, keeping alive. And this plant was dying. And I had this moment where I was staring at it and staring at my computer and, you know, feeling like if this plant is dying with no light and, you know, no watering, metaphorically speaking, you know, I feel like part of me is like dying on the inside and I need to to do something about it. I could sit here and do my 30 years and get the pension or I can shift shift gears and and I ultimately decided to bet on myself and to to shift. Mm-hmm. Um, that story really stands out to me because I think a dying plant in a windowless room is motivation for anyone to be like <laughs> life is not supposed to thrive here and maybe there's another way. Um, and so then, so then what, I mean, you, you knew you wanted to be creative and, you know, you have an entrepreneurial spirit. It was, I think part of, tell us your, your parents are entrepreneurs or have a background in dabbling in that. Is that right? Yeah. I came from a family who really, um, who nurtured that nurtured creativity art. Both my parents were dentists, but both of them were also artists. Um, my mother mixed media and jewelry and painting and my father painting and welding, sculpting. And so I grew up around all of this creativity and I felt like, oh, but I'm the black sheep. I'm, I'm supposed to be the one that's, you know, I'm going to go to law school and I'm going to have like a very steady career. Um, but what I realized is that you know, my, my father worked for himself and was, you know, an entrepreneur. And I also came from a family where my cousins started their own companies out of college and have been thriving ever since. And so I had this, like, you know, maybe being my own boss is something that I can do. Like, maybe I, I have the tools in which I can create this life for myself. But I have to say that it was really hard to make that decision, even though I had all of these great influences, because you know, there is something very steady about having a paycheck coming in where you can leave at five or six or seven o'clock and, and kind of shut off for the night. And, you know, I was also leaving the career, like a career that, you know, you see steady growth in pay and in like status and title. And it took a lot um, for me and it, and it still comes up where, you know, I know that friends have, you know, gone on to become partners or make, you know, X amount of money. And that hasn't been the path that I've chosen. And I wouldn't change my path for theirs at this point. Like I'm, I'm thrilled with the choice that I made, but it did take some unlearning, if you will, to like Mm -hmm. fight that urge to compare my, like what I now view success versus what the traditional view of success is. Um, Yeah. Yeah, and I think that a lot of us struggle with that. It sounds like too, you you had both influences, some steadiness and also a lot of creative entrepreneurial outlets. Um, so you, I know that you've done some work with your sister too. Um, and I know that that's a unique dynamic to, to work with a sister in business. Um, sometimes it can go really, really well. Sometimes it's super stressful or sometimes it's both stressful and going well. Um, tell us, how did you decide to go into business with your sister, Willa? And, and what has that been like to, to work with her and, and build your businesses this way? Yeah, so after I ended up leaving uh, the law, I sort of was unmoored. I did my, you know, eat, pray, love moment without the prey, lots of eating and, and loving um, around the world for seven months. And I came back and I sort of wasn't sure what I wanted to do, um, but I did have a real estate license, which... Um, conveniently you can have if you if you have a law degree and so I I was working in real estate at the time at a startup and my sister was working um, as a designer at a fashion house she is a creative she went to RISD um, and she was a um, a patron at a art you know a, a photo studio where the clothes were being photographed and she was sitting in this space in in Brooklyn and thinking to herself that, 
you know, it was an environment that she wanted to be in all day. You know, normally in a photo shoot, you're there for 10 or 12 hours. And this experience for her, it was kind of like a white box space with no character. And she was like, you know what, I, I could do this better. And she asked me if I would start researching for her, you know, what, what spaces in the city would cost. And as I did research for, with her, with no intention of working with her, we kind of both started to, to say, you know, this is a problem to be solved. Everyone has everything in New York City except for space. Space is, you know, a prime valuable thing. Um, and creating a space that people want to be in, that people feel connected, feel inspired. Mm-hmm. Um, and so after each having several talks with our individual therapists about working together, we decided to to try it, to go into business together. Um, me working in the operations aspect of it and um, client communications, things that were more natural to, to my abilities. And Willa as the creative director with social media and her um, her background in, in the creative sector, she had a lot of um, contacts already. And we came together, found a beautiful space in Soho that had character of its own, but was very unloved at the time. And we rehabbed it back to the space that it is. And we created Blank Studio, which is a rental photography studio and event space. Um, And what I've loved about it is that not only does it bring in all different kinds of, you know, product and and fashion photographers, but we also have the ability because we have the space to create opportunities for giving back to charity and partnering with really amazing organizations to, you know, foster small businesses um, and specifically a lot of female founded businesses um, and amplify different voices in the industry. Yeah, I I love this uh, sort of beginning of uh, sort of a chapter with you and your sister. I know it also blends into some other work that you're doing together, but I've been to the blank studios and they're beautiful. And it's just this incredible space that is super inviting. And I, I want to have you talk a little bit about the desire to build community, because again, you, 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 you and your sister own a, or you, you own a space where you could bring in high profile clients left and right, but you also choose to allocate the space for friends for, you know, the holiday festival you ran recently, you, you choose to use this space to foster community. So I'd love to know a little bit about how and why that's so important to you and how you see that playing out in a space like the Blank Studios and also in your work around end-of-life planning, like this concept of community building. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that as I've reflected on my my path, I've noticed that something that's been really important in a, in a, a thread is that I want to create space for, for people <laughs> in whether it's feeling nurtured and cared for in grief um, and holding a safe space for them or in just like a in a physical location that has been designed to to feel connected and and to inspire and um and it's interesting that that has kind of been the through line but why it's important it's because I think that in the earlier part of my career I felt that there wasn't a sense of community. I had some amazing coworkers and people that I met within the legal profession, but there wasn't this sense of of community, of connection. I felt a lot of the time that it uh, of you know a loneliness or not feeling um, like I had the resources to grow in the way or the mentorship, and that's something that I always wanted. And so having this space has allowed us to experiment with. Um, partnering with with other female-owned businesses um, that also wanted to grow or to create entrepreneur groups that um, felt like creating the support that I didn't have previously. Um, And also just, you know, if people are spending 10 or 12 hours a day somewhere, you want them to feel like they want to be there, that they, they get what they need in terms of light, you know, our space has like an, an ample amount of light compared to my last job. Um, and, you know, the high ceilings make you just, you know, think about how this was a factory in the 19th century, but now it's this created into this beautiful new experience. Um, and it's just been exciting to see what people create in our space, but also the community that's 
come about from it. Um, and, and yeah, I've, I've loved every step of it. Cool. It's really interesting because you, you, like you said, you get all walks of life. You could get people in the fashion industry, people in, in business, you could get solo entrepreneurs or people who are small business owners coming in and just forging relationships. And it's, it's really designed for your, you know, insights and wisdom to build community. And I think that all of us, and we've each had our own individual journey with what COVID did to our communities and our relationships, but I'd love to hear you since you've had the studio now for a number of years and you're, you're in the midst of, you know, launching and, and doing well in your coaching business, what has, what has changed, do you think, for like, for all of us from like a desire for community since COVID? Like, what has shifted for us? And what are you seeing? Like, are you seeing any trends in what people are willing to spend money and time on? Or um, any trends in just like people's um, resiliency for like socialization at these events or uh, coming in and out of the studio? Yeah, I think more than ever, people want in-person community. I think everyone took for granted that at any point of the time of the day, pre-COVID, you could go out and find people to to do anything with, whether it's just going to a bar or a networking group or, um, you know, just visiting friends. And what a, you know, a collective grief to realize that, you know, we were all isolated and, um, and sitting with ourselves, which in many ways was, you know, very important to self-reflection, but um, detrimental to feeling part of a collective, being part of a community. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a real loss before COVID, we would host community gatherings once a month around the ideas of love, um, love and relationships, health and wellness, personal finance, career growth, mm-hmm. um, and then just craft things like, you know, floral arranging, just things that you could do tactilely with your hands. Um, and not having that for the last two and a half years was was pretty devastating. We, we didn't make any money off of it. We just wanted to have, you know, create a space that people could learn and to grow. And we've only started to, to bring those back recently. And the feedback we've gotten was how missed it was, how just, you know, seeing someone and having those networking things over Zoom while... Um, great that we have that technology and a way to stay connected when we can't be together um, in a physical location was was vitally important. But having that interaction, seeing someone and getting a hug from someone in person or speaking with someone like where you're really looking to someone's eyes, you you can't you can't fake that over a Zoom. And um, trends like I've I've noticed that people want to do more arts. Um, related activities that while, while people do still want to learn and, you know, want to learn about finance or, you know, whatever kind of uh, speaker we have in, we've noticed that the things where people get to go back to play, go back to like a more sense of childhood wonder has been the thing that draws people in. So whether it's like the floral arranging or like a crocheting, a basket night or a wine tasting. Um, what else have we had recently? Um, yeah, just, you know, stuff with plants, uh, you know, things where people are, you know, kind of just getting to use the different part of their brain and take them out of the, the stress of the day-to-day life and, and into the play world. Yeah, it's huge. I, I love that your space also provides that. I was, when you were listing some of the ideas, I was like, let's combine wine tasting with crocheting and just, um, yeah, I, I really feel that too for, in for, for many months and even years, it was like, okay, meet my friend for coffee or tea. And like, I got to this point too, and you might resonate or not. I don't know, like, of like, I I don't want to talk anymore. Like, actually I can't talk anymore about the life happenings because it was so hard for so many of us here, especially in New York with, with losing our communities or communities changing that, it was like, I just wanted to build stuff and go do stuff. So um, I love that you have that space and that you continue to make room for those types of activities because it, it's certainly a hub for many of us to, to look out for and to, to visit. So um, I w- want to turn our attention a little bit back to your work in, in the end of life planning. Um, you know, I'd love to know if you can tell us the impetus for that. And I, I know you come from a family that is reflective and shares and writes and expresses um, and that could be the the birthing grounds for any sort of great 
uh, sort of coaching work, but why, why death doula work? You know, like, like many, uh, many people's stories of a personal tragedy or potential tragedy came about to, to make me go in this, this direction, which was my mother in 2018 had a freak car accident and she's fine now. I will preface with that, but um, I got a call. I was, you know, at the studio. I got a call um, that said she's fine, but she's at the hospital. And my first thought wasn't, how is she? Like, how can I get there fast enough? It was, oh my gosh, I have all of her end of life documents sitting on my desk um, that I haven't gotten signed or notarized. Um, she had given them to me about four months prior. Um, to make me her power of attorney and, and healthcare proxy. And there was some mental block around the fact that I was looking at my mother's, you know, paperwork that surrounds, you know, either a, a horrific accident or death um, that I, I didn't, I didn't complete the documents and I'm a lawyer, I'm smart and I'm organized and I'm a responsible human. And, and there was that block and um. And I started to think that if I had that block, then I think a lot of people had the block either around facing their own mortality by filling out these documents for themselves or for, you know, having those conversations with their parents or their, their loved ones. Um, and so when I did get those documents in order and I was um, helping my mother with her recovery, I realized all of the things that go into someone who has either passed away or, or has had a, has had a serious um, medical condition. And so I was dealing with insurance, with a police report, with dealing with what to do with her pets, um, with mail, just all of the logistical things. Um, mm -hmm. And I did have my sister who was a tremendous help during that time, but a lot of the things I had to figure out on the spot. And when you're dealing with all of these logistics, there's no time to sit with grief. There was no time to sit with my mother and just be with her. Um, and it doesn't make the grief or those feelings go away. It just puts them, pushes them down into a place that will eventually pop up at potentially an inopportune moment. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted to be able to help other people allow them to be in their grief or allow them to be with the person who is, who is dying mm -hmm. um, and take some of that pressure off of them because it was a really lonely experience for me. Um, and I didn't find the resources online that I would have wanted or, or a human. I didn't know where to look. Um, mm -hmm. And so that sort of spawned how I got into um learning about what a death doula is and what end of life planning in, entails and and how our society is just really scared of of death and of dying and of grief um mm -hmm. but it's very much there for all of us especially with covid yeah that's an incredible story and i am happy your mom's doing well and and, and healthy these days um i can imagine yeah, the myriad of emotions and feelings that would come up, you know, because you had had this conversation with your mom before and you were in the process of trying to get some of this finalized. So what do you think are some of the big blocks that prevent people from doing end-of-life planning for themselves or for their loved ones? Like, what do you see out there in your coaching that are patterns that kind of keep people from taking action? I think one thing is it's that, you know, like any other adulting thing, it's, it's a lot of, pa it's paperwork. It's thinking about things that are, you know, not necessarily pleasant. It's, it's having to think about your eventual death. Um, mm -hmm. And, and a lot of people aren't ready to think about that. They, the, the feeling is when we're young, you know, oh, I have so much time. Like, I don't need to deal with this yet. Um, but the reality is that none of us are guaranteed a long life. Um, and having your paperwork or having your wishes in order um, is the greatest gift you can give to your family um, mm -hmm. because it takes the burden off of them and gives them a clear roadmap of how to, to, honor, to honor you. Um, so I think that there is just a, a feeling that if you're, if you're thinking about death, that somehow it makes it 
more present or more likely to happen. Um, and so there's that. And, and I think there is just an emotional block for people to think about their, to their parents or their, their loved ones um, passing. It's, mm-hmm. or it's, you know, if you've just had a child, it's thinking about a life where you might not be a part of their life. Um, there's so much emotion that goes into our decisions on whether to, to do something or not, not do something. And yeah. oftentimes you just need an accountability partner to help you and to guide you through the process. Um, so I would imagine too, from what you're probably seeing is a bit of education. Like, I don't think until I came to your workshop that you ran on this, that I didn't realize how many steps there were to planning properly. You know, I have like, for example, I have a life insurance policy and I was like, Oh, cool. I have my decks in a row. I have some things. I'm like, cool. I look proud of myself. And I realized, you know, as your workshop was going on, that there were a lot of really actually pretty simple things I, I could do to just make communication and, the process of let's say I get sick and you know I'm really sick and I need people to be there making decisions for me like uh, to have that in order so a lot of it is I think for many people is just the avoidance of the topic of death because like no one really is <laughs> super excited to talk about that every day although I think it's, I think it's an interesting beautiful thing and, and obviously but I've been through a lot in the last couple of months my um my dad passed in November so it's been on my mind all for many years actually but I just didn't know how much went into it. Um, so I'd love to you speak about something that's really interesting to me, uh, the legacy that, you know, we can think proactively about the legacy that we get to leave and how, how it affects our family and friends and the people who will be taking care of us in those final days and moments. Um, it's a very generous perspective to have, to think that way, right? I feel like it removes yourself from being like the end all um, most important thing in the world. And you start to think, oh, well, I would want my mom to feel this, or I want my sister to feel this. And I, I, I the, the essence that I get from that whole thing of the concept of legacy is generosity, like that you want to help other people through a really hard time. That's, that's beautiful. Um, and it's so true. And, and I do want to stop and acknowledge what you've been going through um, in the last few months. And I know that we've talked about it, but um, something that I learned from you is how open you've been on, you know, social media and with your friends talking about your experience, talking about your grief. And by doing that, I don't know that, or maybe you do realize how um, of a positive impact it has on other people being able to share similar feelings. Mm -hmm. Um, Because normally it's not like in the 19th century or 18th century where people wore black in grief you know, you don't know what people are going through on a day-to-day basis Mm -hmm. um, because death has been sort of pushed aside. Mm -hmm. And so being able to speak openly about it, like you're saying, um, gives people opportunity to, to share their own grief. And so I think that that is often overlooked in our society, um, the grief that is there, but not shared. Um, But to your point about legacy, Yes. Um, like, you know, any coaching these days, you know, or any sort of goal setting, you know, you, you see the goal and then you see, see what you can do to get to that goal. Um, and with legacy, it's, it's similar. How, how do you want to be remembered? What is a life well lived to you? Everyone has a different answer to that. Um, and when you can look at at your life and what you're hoping to create or how to like what does a full life mean to you you can start to see well are my actions aligned with how how I want to live am I taking the steps that would would make the end of my life feel like I have no regrets you know I think that for a lot of people if they're saying well I'm miserable in my job but I don't know what to do but at the end of their life, they want to be like, I've built something myself that I'm, I'm proud of, um, you know, like, how can you realign? How can you take steps to save the money now that you want so that you can take that leap into entrepreneurship? Or if you want to leave a financial, you know, amount so that your child has their college paid for, well, how can you make those financial decisions now that will get, get to that goal? So. There's so much, you know, 
not just financial, but just how do we want to feel and mm -hmm. what are we doing now that will get us to that? Yeah, I think that it stood out to me because I just thought, you know, I think about probably all of us who maybe are coaches, entrepreneurs, we do things that are in essence here to help other people live better lives, right? So I, I think about legacy quite a bit. And that just really struck me when I went to your workshop. I was like, oh, that that catches my attention. And I'll, I'll do whatever I need to do to make sure that the people around me are okay, even if it's annoying paperwork or things that I don't want to do or think about. Um, so I think that that's an interesting take on it. Um, so I, I want to talk a little bit about sort of grief. You mentioned something about like, we don't know what people are going through. Um, and there's this book I'm reading by Francis Weller or Weiler. He's a psychologist and it's a really beautiful book on, on sorrow and, and grief. And I'll share it in the notes, but um, it just talks a lot about how, especially in the Western world right now, you know, it, it depends what religion you're from, right? Like in the Catholic religion, uh, Christian religion, like there wasn't, there was a mass, there was a burial, it was very beautiful, but there really isn't um, a, a laid out touch point or like plan for people in the next six to 12 months. Whereas in the Jewish, you know, tradition, there's, you know, there's sitting Shiva for 14 days. And then there's like, you know, other elements that are sort of built into, you know, the customs of grief. Um, but I just, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on like, how as a culture we handle grief, um, what you'd like to see shift for people. I know your work is a lot on the preparation for death and end of life planning, but of course, grief plays a role in the whole process of, of your coaching, I'm sure. So I'd just love to hear your thoughts on how we handle grief and what you'd like to see change in our culture and in the American culture broadly. Yeah, it's it's a great question. And I think that it's it's such an individual question. I think as a society, we don't deal with grief well, but I think that it's it's changing because of, of what we've lived through. Um, it's put grief of all different kinds in perspective, not just death of a, of a human, but death of, of specific dreams. Like, you know, everyone put their life on pause and there was a lot of grief and jobs lost or, you know, plans that didn't happen. And I think grief came in a lot of different ways for people. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's much more in the forefront of society right now. And I'm hoping that it leads to these conversations around, um, not just focusing on all of the good that's happening, but also spending time with, with acknowledging our grief and, and giving honor to it. Um, it doesn't make us less likely to experience joy in the future and joy and grief can live simultaneously with each other. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that's something that's really important for, for people is to create ritual around grief um, and, and how important that is in it, grief doesn't go away, but it, it evolves, it changes. Um, and, and creating ritual, I think is a beautiful way in which to, to honor that grief. So whether it is like you're saying the ritual of Shiva of, of honoring someone, whether it be through a memorial or, or planting a tree and having, um, you know, visits, um, it's honoring important days, um, in, in the life of someone who's passed, whether it's an anniversary or a birthday or just something special that you, you spent together. Yeah. You know, for, for my grandfather, um, he's buried in, um, in upstate New York in this beautiful cemetery. We've done picnics by the cemetery, by his grave and, and created just, mm -hmm. you know, a space in which to to visit and honor him, but be with family. Um, there's all different kinds of ways um, to honor someone after they've gone, but also to honor yourself in, in those experiences. Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, in, in the book, Francis kind of says like, we really, grief only becomes problematic when it has no place to live. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes, you know, it, it could lead to, you know, um, really bad depression or just, you know, trauma, you know? Um, and so I think what you're saying about all the different ways traditions can look or rituals can look is really, really important for people to, to know and hear um, that it doesn't have to look one way. It doesn't even have to be, you know, um, dedicated to religion or anything. Um, 
the idea of having a picnic around a grave is actually really sweet. Um, and I think probably was good for your family, I bet, in some ways, too. And to the to your point in that quote, you know, our society thinks that once you've had a certain amount of time, that grief goes away or that you are back to being a functional human. And and mm -hmm. that's just not that's just not the case. Having a two week bereavement period is not enough to say, well, OK, so are you are you over it yet? Even if it's not a human, even if it's a pet, if, if someone is important to you or something is important to you and it is gone, there's not a specific amount of time in which to heal yeah. heal from that. Um, and giving people the grace to, to not be okay um, would make our society a lot healthier. I think that you're on to, that you're onto something there that being not okay is actually a good thing to, to be acknowledging and to get the support you need. I feel like at least in the corporate America culture, the the inclusion of mental health days, of bereavement days of, to different lengths is, is a good sign. I don't think that was always there. Um, I also think it's kind of interesting. I remember hearing someone say once, and I don't remember who said it, but they said, maybe it was back when I was in the health world, they said something like the first year of life and the last year of life are the most, most critical, that you need the most support. And that makes perfect sense if you think about it. Um, but I think it's interesting, you know, we have prenatal, um, uh, not prenatal, we have um, uh, paternal, ah, what's the language here? Um, paternity leave, maternity mm -hmm. leave, people get weeks and months off when new life comes. And then when, when people pass, we might get two or three days, even if it's a parent or a sibling or a spouse. And granted, people can use their vacation days if they're in corporate America or in education, but it just, I'd love to hear your thoughts on we give months to the beginning of life for the people that are involved. And that's right, that that's valid. <laughs> but we give maybe days to people who are losing someone that they've spent 70, 60, 80 years with. And I just love to hear your thoughts on how, how we handle that and like the work culture and, and, and what we might be able to think differently about. Yeah, I, I agree with you that there are steps being taken now that allow for, for, at least in the the beginning stages of life, uh, more opportunities for men and women to be able to take that time. But I think you're right. There is this this void at the end where perhaps it's because you, you can't predict to a science how long someone is going to live or die at the end of life. You know, people get um, a, a diagnosis, and it could be a range of months. It could it could be a year, or two years. So I think there is this, you know, there's, there's, we don't know how long people are going to, to live if they've gotten that diagnosis, which could be part of it. But I think there, there isn't as much understanding of how grief affects the rest of our life and how you can't necessarily, some people are better at compartmentalizing those feelings than others, but um, giving space to, to grieve to, or to, just be with your loved ones at the end is vitally important. And to have to choose between having a career or having, you know, job stability and being with your loved one at the end of your life is not a fair choice because those are sometimes the most um, beautiful, memorable moments of one's time with their family, like, um, and not something that you should have to choose your livelihood over, um, not just being with the person for the sake of the dying person, but for yourself, for your for that relationship and for giving yourself the space in which self-care is number one and not, um, a, you know, corporate America. Um, it is sad that it's not more, more important or there are, you know, plenty of European countries or other first world countries who, where um, bereavement is, you know, is honored with, with more time or space. Um, and like you said, mental health days, um, you can get a year in some of the Scandinavian countries if, if you need mental health time, um, whereas here you'll be out of a job. Yeah, the disparity is pretty stark. And I think it also just speaks to how other countries and cultures have really prioritized and sort of elevated, you know, death as a transition, like something to, to really honor. And I think that here in America, we're, we're catching up at best uh, how we talk about it, how we provide space for people and resources. Um, 
I hope that we make big changes, but I am optimistic based off just some of the creative ways we honor people. You know, like when my dad passed, I had a few friends like, you know, donate um, or plant a tree in, in his memory. And I think that those are beautiful things and they're not two weeks off, but they, you know, there's this essence of like knowing that there's a couple of trees growing right now in the Appalachian forest. And that's kind of cool. Um, so I think it's a big deal. Um, I'd love to have you talk a little bit about, you know, as, as an entrepreneur, as a coach, someone who's working with people in situations that are really important and, and setting them up for success in their families. What are the things that you're sort of unlearning about the process of, of coaching this type of way and or just being a coach in general? What are some things you're unlearning in this process? Um, I think that, you know, just taking um, or acknowledging that everyone comes to this work from a different starting point um, based on how we were raised, how our, our parents were raised, how their parents were raised. And we come to to where we are from from different starting points. And so taking people from, from where they are and acknowledging that and 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 adjusting accordingly. Um, it's not a one size fits all for for how people um, view death and dying in grief. Um, and and really that everyone, you know, whether it's based on their their religion um, or or lack thereof um, has different feelings about it, and so I think it's just like how can I how can I show up and hold space for where you are mm-hmm. um, without expectations um, and and allowing them to to not feel one way or the other about if they they feel like they should be more comfortable with death or, you know, that that's okay for where they are. And, and some people are going to go through their whole life and not be able to, to talk about certain things with their family. And that's, that's okay. Like people have different relationships with their family and there are certain topics that may not, you know, be able to be broached based on, on trauma, based on relationship. Um, and I think there's also this, uh, Something that's uh, that I've learned by working with people is that it's also okay that you don't have a a good relationship with someone who's died. That not everything needs to be forgiven or forgotten, um, and that you can honor a person or or feel feelings that aren't uh, necessarily accepted in society, like not thinking a person was a good person when they've passed away, and also that's okay. You don't have to forgive everything when just because someone has died. Yeah. It, I imagine you're learning and unlearning so much because you're working with people at a time of transition and transition can be really peaceful and celebratory for some and can be really complicated, you know, complex grief of, again, a parent or somebody who was, who was not kind, who was maybe abusive and like the, the grief of the life, the life that they didn't get to have with them and the relationship they didn't get to have, that was it wasn't ideal. Um, I imagine it's so much, but I think your point of meeting people where they are effectively is the most important thing and and seeing what what unfolds because everyone will have a different relationship to to grief and to dying. Um I, I want to ask you one more question and then we're gonna do rapid fire for fun. <laughs> the last question is, you know, when we think about the school of unlearning, is it is it series of conversations with people who are seekers, who are challenging status quo, who are reinventing themselves and the world around them. And so when you think about the the word unlearning, um, how do you define it or what comes to mind when you hear it? Um, I think it is, it's a way in which we've been taught to think about something um, without putting much thought into what that means for you personally. And that that realization or the the understanding that that might not be true for you and how do you change or or grow or adjust to to live a life that feels authentic um, and that things that we were taught in the past may have been true at some time and may not be true now and that that's okay um, I know that for myself you know 
the fact that I have several different passions or career choices that I'm choosing to do at the same time and that I no longer have, you know, that corporate job, that was an unlearning for me um, that I still grapple with, that I still keep choosing to do. Um, but that was an unlearning for me. Um, and, and even, you know, as an adult who is choosing not to have children, that's something as a woman in society, we've been told you're, you get married and you have children and I'm choosing to not do that. And that's been an unlearning that I can have a full, complete loved life and choose something different than what a lot of people expect. Hell yeah, you can. I'm, <laughs> I'm proud of you for that too. There's so much unlearning there. And I love just what you shared about your journey. Um, I'm excited to see where it goes, friend. So we're going to close with a rapid fire. Um, whatever comes to mind when I give you some prompts. Um, so audible book or hard copy book? Oh, hard copy, except while traveling. Fair. Um, would you prefer mountains or ocean? Mountains any day. Vanilla or chocolate? Chocolate. Zoom or Google Hangouts? <laughs> Google Hangouts. Really? We're on Zoom right now for everyone listening. Um, <laughs> Zoom does not sponsor this podcast, so we're not, we're not worried about offending them. Um, cats or dogs? Dogs. Red wine or white wine or rosé? White wine or bubbly. Um, karaoke or attending a live uh, musical production that where you're not singing? <laughs> I kind of love a good karaoke, even though I don't proclaim to have a good voice. Um, what is one book that you're reading right now? I am reading... Um, a book called Stiff. Um, I, uh, it's, it's a comedy about uh, human cadavers. <laughs> um, it's, um, it's, it's an interesting book by a, a mortician. What's one piece of advice you have for people out there who, um, who know they need to do more end-of-life planning but are hesitant? That it can start with just the smallest steps. Um, there are things you can do in front of the TV uh, by like getting your important documents in just a, a shared Google Drive or um, a hard copy um, that you can just do in your free time and that it's all doable. And, you know, it's just a matter of taking the time to do it. Sure. Thanks for coming on the School of Unlearning podcast, friend. Uh, it was great to have you and talk about all things life and grief and death and entrepreneurship. Um, you're amazing and I can't wait to see what you do and support you in the future. Likewise, my friend, thank you. Hey friends, thanks for listening to the School of Unlearning podcast. You can follow us on Spotify and iTunes. Be sure to check out the show notes, complete with links and insight you won't wanna miss. If you enjoyed this episode, take one minute to rate, review and share this podcast because our learning and unlearning never ends and we don't have to do it alone.